and welcome to Note Up. This is Note Up number 112 and we have a very special guest for you today. I have a one-on-one with Suze Hinton. The reason this is special is because today you have a treat of two Aussies talking to each other. So please forgive us if, if we descend into Aussie jargon and lingo and we confuse you. So we'll, we'll try hard to keep it above board. Anyway, I'm Rod Vag. I do open source at NodeSource. I'm on the Node Foundation TSC and the board. And my guest today is Suze Hinton. And Suze, tell us about yourself. Yeah, my name's Suze Hinton, as you just said, and I am a front-end developer at Kickstarter, which is a crowdfunding platform where we bring creative projects to life. And Suze actually does Node as well, so we're going to dive into to how you might know her from her Node projects, but we'll get there in a minute. So I want to introduce our sponsors today. We have three sponsors. We've got DigitalOcean, we've got Sneak, and we've got Rollbar. And first of all, we're going to hear from DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the best place to get your application off the ground quickly and the easiest to scale when you find success. Start with the pre-configured Node.js one-click to get up and running in 55 seconds or build the exact infrastructure you need with root access to servers running 100% SSDs in state-of-the-art data centers around the world. DigitalOcean's easy-to-use API makes integrating tools like Jenkins and Terraform simple. DigitalOcean is the fastest-growing cloud infrastructure provider because it's built for developers and laser-focused on its mission to create simple and elegant solutions for developers and teams. DigitalOcean community articles provide guidance on a wide array of topics that help developers build better and faster infrastructure. Many of the Node.js packages for different Linux distros are actually built and tested on DigitalOcean VMs by Node.js and NodeSource. Get $10 credit when you sign up for a new account through the link do.co slash nodeup. As an added bonus, every time a new listener signs up, another randomly selected old listener gets a bonus $25 credit. Uh, welcome back. Now we're going to get to know Suze and, and find out what, what it is she does and how she got here. So let's, let's back right up and find out how you got into the industry in general. How did you get into programming? Was it through programming? Was it through design? How early was that for you? I was one of those kids that was always drawing and building things out of construction paper and stuff like that. And I think I was about nine years old when we got our first computer and it was like a hand-me-down Commodore 64 and I think it was about seven years after it came out so it was sort of old hat at the time but I think that most people think of computers especially in that in in kind of that time as being business machines but as a kid I knew exactly what this was and it was just a machine to make art on because that's what I wanted to do. Um, so I was just like, this is an art machine. And I essentially like taught myself how to program with a, a textbook that my dad gave me. And I learned how to poke registers to create graphics that I could then print out and sort of draw on with, with markers and stuff. So that's sort of how I got my start because I just wanted to continue making art just, I guess, on a different platform. Wow. Okay. I, yeah, I mean, like I grew up with a, a Vic 20 so it was the generally machine before that one, but I, I never treated it as an art machine. It was always really very much about um, making it do stuff that I tell it to do. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that was the basic command line, you know, it really did do what you wanted it to. So I think, I think we're in a similar capacity there. I just was telling it how to draw pictures. <laughs> so presumably you got in, you got, you got a, a, um, a, an Intel machine later on and then went from there. Yeah, eventually I got just like a, a 486 or something like that. And it was pretty good, but it didn't have the internet. But I heard about this thing called the internet and I ended up going to the library and just borrowed books about the internet, like everything from how to use IRC to how to like get onto message boards and things like that and telnet and stuff like that. So I would say that I probably knew more about the internet than my friends who actually had the internet. And I just felt like by the time I have the internet, I will know how to do all of the things. And so that involved learning HTML and then putting that putting my website on a floppy disk and then riding the bus to the library to upload it onto, a, I think it was Tripod or GeoCities or something like that. So that's kind of how it skewed into web development. Again, it was just kind of a creative outlet for me. That's awesome. That's, that's fantastic. I've got, a, I've got a similar library story as well, but it's not about me. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> how, did this, how did this turn into work for you then? 
Yeah, that's a really good question because I didn't know that you could do this professionally. And so I was studying chemistry and environmental science and biology and stuff like that because I was sort of looking to get into more like animal husbandry or being a veterinary nurse. And then I realized that this was actually something I was much more passionate about and that you could get paid to do it. And so I sort of told my parents that this is what I wanted to do and they ended up being quite supportive. And so I ended up just focusing on that and I didn't go and get a degree or anything like that. I just did a lot of freelancing and stuff like that and managed to kind of, once I graduated from high school, I managed to get a few jobs just starting out as like a front end developer. Was it, you, were, you were located in one of the major cities and you were, where, where were you located? Yeah, that's a good question. At the time, I was in Melbourne, Australia, which is where I grew up. Okay, so there was there was plenty of opportunities in Melbourne for that kind of that kind of work then. Yeah, I got really lucky. Like, I think my first like professional job, which was sort of a contract position, was at the National Gallery of Victoria, and that's like quite prestigious to sort of get a job at as like a grad. And I got to work on a lot of their educational resources and. I got to be part of how we were hacking like those first or second generation iPods so that you could lock down your own custom menus and stuff. And they were kind of the audio tours of the gallery exhibits at the time. And so I learned a lot about lots of different things. My colleague there, Maxime Lin, he taught me what Ajax was and it just blew my mind. So yeah, that was a really cool job. Okay. Now you, so you're in the US now and You've been through a fair bit to get where you're at. So I, I want to dive into that because I think there's some people who are listening who might have a similar story, but also who might be interested in getting into the, the heat of the, you know, the Silicon Valley startup market, all that sort of stuff. So how did you get a job in the US and, and what was that process like? That's an excellent question. And I could spend like two hours talking to you about this, but I'll keep it as short and useful as I can. Yeah, if you if you want to be a software engineer in um, or like just a web developer or something like that, I think they're all the same thing, software engineer, web developer. You can essentially go for a visa in the US called a H-1B. And that's a really good visa for being a software engineer because it's for specialist, I guess, skill sets. And so software engineering is seen as a specialist skill set as far as the American Immigration Department uh, is concerned. And so I ended up just applying for jobs through the regular jobs pages on different websites and said that, you know, I would be eligible to be sponsored for a work visa. And eventually one of the companies reached out to me and we sort of got the ball rolling from there. And the visa that I ended up on, I was really lucky, is an, it's called an E3. And I'm sure you know about this, Rod. <laughs> it's the specialist treaty visa for Australians specifically. So if any Australians are listening right now, you have this really rare privilege of being able to kind of skip out on the H1B, which has a lot of complications to it. And you can go through the channels to get an E3 visa, which allows you to be of temporary worker status in the US. And so that's how I came to be able to live and work in the US. Do you know much about the E3 process? Are they, is that limited by the, is there a number of slots for that? And is there, are there particular countries that can get that? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's reserved only for Australians, uh, Australian citizens, and there is a limit, and I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but generally it never gets hit every year. And so I think about four or five years ago, the number was at about 3,000. I think Australians were on that E3, including myself. And so that's a pretty low number. And it you can apply for that visa any time of the year, whereas H-1Bs are in cycles where you put your application in before April and then you go into a lottery and then if you win the lottery, you then have the opportunity to maybe pursue that further and then if you get approved, you can't start your job. You don't get that work permit until October and so it's a really long, drawn-out, very kind of stressful process And the E3 is much simpler. As soon as you have a job offer, you can apply for that visa. And if you process it with, you know, expedited processing, which is a little bit of extra money, then you can usually have an answer within a few weeks. 
you know, it may take well, months to put the paperwork together, but you do get an answer very quickly. Okay. Well, there's a tip for any Aussies listening. So why did you do this? Was it, was this, the, it was an attraction of going to the US? Was it about the technology opportunities over there or were you just looking for something interesting to do? Yeah, that's a good question. I, this might be a, a, a bit of a cop-out disappointing answer, but I didn't really want to move to the US at first. I was really happy in Melbourne and I, you know, it's the world's most livable city several years in a row. And so I felt so privileged to live there, but I had the opportunity to move there with a partner at the time. He got a job in the US and instead of sort of just sort of sitting that one out, I decided to go along and I decided to find a job there and see whether or not I could sort of make my own happiness there. And I think that I thought I'd be there for a year and I ended up just kind of flabbergasted at a lot of the opportunities that you have and and all of the interesting companies that you can work at once you actually make your way over to the US. Now, you didn't go to Silicon Valley, though, did you? You went um, <laughs> elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> can, you talk, can you talk about your, 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 the job you went into? Yeah, definitely. So instead of Silicon Valley, I applied for a job at a company called Zappos. And Zappos.com is an online shoe retailer that also sells clothing and accessories as well. And they're a very weird and wonderful company with that are quite famous for their culture. But the funniest thing about them is that they're located in Las Vegas. So I didn't kind of overshot California and Silicon Valley and landed in Las Vegas instead. So you went really hardcore American. Like this is like Las Vegas has all of the like that's, you know, <laughs> that's a totally different culture to Silicon Valley. That must have been a real eye opener for you coming from Melbourne. Totally. So I'd. Just like full disclosure, I'd never visited the, visited the US before. And I think I I'd I'd visited Vanuatu, which is an island just like off the east coast of Australia. And that was sort of my first big trip. And then I think about six months later, I moved to Las Vegas. And I remember just getting picked up at the airport. I was driven to a casino. I lived in a casino for the first week while we looked for a house and between the jet lag and just the chandeliers and the weird glittering lights and just the accents and everything was just so overwhelming that I had no idea what was going on. It was a really bizarre but very exciting intro to, uh, to moving to North America, that's for sure. That's Twilight Zone. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so now you lasted there for a while, but now you're at, at Kickstarter and you're not in Las Vegas anymore. How did you get a job at Kickstarter? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So I was in Las Vegas for about four years and I worked at Zappos.com for about, I think, three and a half years. It took a while for the paperwork to, to get through, so I didn't start there immediately. I had the the CTO at the time of, of Kickstarter reached out to me. We sort of knew each other from Twitter and just from talking to each other and sharing expat stories. And he knew of me and he knew that I was skilled enough for the position that he was trying to fill. So he reached out to me and he's like, have you thought about moving to New York? And I'd actually been thinking about where I'd like to move next just the week before. So it was just really, really good timing. And New York is a place that I've always wanted to to live in ever since I moved to America and visited there for the first time. So I feel like that sort of fell into place so naturally that I was really, really excited to join that company. Yeah, and New York's really exciting. I I haven't spent much time in New York, but the time I have spent there, I can imagine it's a really vibrant, lively place to live. Is that, has that been a great change from Las Vegas? Yeah, I, I loved Las Vegas for a lot of reasons. I think part of it was it just, it was so hard to adapt to the place that I definitely, like I grew up a little bit and I got a little bit tougher and I just sort of was able to sort of learn how to, I don't know, just how to adapt to things, I guess. So there was a certain amount of emotional maturity I got from Vegas, but it just never really felt like home. I think I just got homesick because it was so different to Melbourne, whereas moving to New York felt like coming home. You know, it just, everything from the culture to the fact that everyone is from all over the world, so you don't get treated like a novelty there, which which suits my introverted manners very well. And it's just, it's, it's got great coffee. It's just got epic subway. Like the subway is one of my favorite things about New York and just, just how busy it is. And there's always something going on. And it just, it, 
it really sort of whirls me up. I definitely get sucked into it. I love it. Yeah, I can I can totally imagine that. Okay, so are you? Do you think that we've lost you to the US, or are you tempted to come home? I definitely go through rough patches of homesickness, and I'm not a great person to be around. I did actually go home twice this year, if that's any indication. And I think that I want to stay here a little bit longer, but I'm not sure that I'll ever make the US like my permanent home. I think my heart will always belong to Australia for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I can understand that. Okay, now the other thing I want to delve into before we finish this getting to know you section is your work with nodebots and hardware. How did you get into that? Because I haven't heard anything about that so far in, in you know your description of about how you got there. But that's that's a really big part of 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 what you enjoy doing, as far as I know. How how did you get there? Yeah, definitely. I I worked at this ad agency for a while, and I was doing a lot of that interactive flash sort of websites that were very popular around 2007. And I had a bit of a quiet day where I didn't have any jobs come in. And so I was reading, I think it was like Make, like O'Reilly Media's Make website. I was reading their blog and I saw that these microcontrollers were coming out. And when I saw what they could do, which was you could just easily connect sensors and lights and motors and stuff to them and just program something really, like a really small script to, to get them going. I was, this was like a whole new world for me and I had to know more about it. So I ended up, when the Arduino came out, I bought an Arduino because the other microcontrollers were prohibitively expensive and Arduino is open sourced and it's a lot cheaper. And at the time, because I was a web developer, you know, like, and I feel like this is still true for web developers and, and JavaScripters, like, you sort of want to do everything with JavaScript or in the browser or whatever. So I figured out a way to hook up Flash to by proxying the serial port connection through a web proxy, and then Flash would listen on the web proxy for the data coming in from, like, the serial port. And... Then I could do things like I could turn a knob on the, like a potentiometer knob on the Arduino, and then it would make a circle in flash, like grow bigger or smaller. And like that to me was amazing. You know, being able to make your own controllers and peripherals and stuff to control your computer to me was just so addictive, like right from the beginning. And you're stuck with it. So what is it? Is it, is it about that connection of your code to the real world? Uh, what is it that drives you there? Is it, or is it something about the artistry of it that you can, you know, express your yourself in these in these physical ways rather than just through a screen? I think it's all of that, definitely. I think that also I I was the generation that grew up with things like tamagotchis and stuff like that, and whenever I bought them, I always just thought of ways that I could sort of make my own. Like I was obsessed with you know, reverse engineering stuff and wanting to have all of my own custom stuff. So I had this weird kind of repulsion to just off the shelf devices as a child. And I'm not sure why, like everything I would have to paint with nail polish to make up my own. And it was this really weird ownership thing that I had. And when I saw that these devices came out, it was everything that I wanted as a child. And so I thought, well, I can still play with this stuff, even if I'm not a kid anymore. And I think that also just what you said about expressing your expressing yourself through these devices is really cool because a lot of the time things are made to be commercial and to sell really well and they're quite sort of general whereas being able to make something quirky or fun that you've never seen before and elicit reactions from people I think that that's pretty like true to what artists want to do right now, you also extend this into 3D printing. I know that's a passion of yours. Is that is that the same sort of thing? Does that go under the same category? Yeah, yeah. I think 3D printer is something that I would have loved to have had as a kid when I was, I think I made like a custom house for my Tamagotchi to sleep in, which was really weird. And I made it out of cardboard and I was putting up wallpaper in there and it had a bed. And I'm just thinking about what I could have done if I was able to 3D print stuff. And I think that Again, that's just a creative outlet for me. And so I, I love having a 3D printer at home. And I got super obsessed with 3D printers for about five or six years for a while there. <laughs> cool. And, and lastly, you're, you're a published author as well, aren't you? You've, got, you've been involved in a book. Tell us about the book. 
you've done your research, Rod. <laughs> um, so there's a book by O'Reilly Media and it's called Make JavaScript Robotics. And I, I wrote just one chapter for that. So I am surrounded by the most incredible authors. There are 16 of us. So it's Rick Waldron, Donovan Buck, Brian Hughes, Pavel Shemskovsky, Raquel Velez, Cassandra Perch, Julian Dirk, Andrew Fisher. I'm going to read them all. David uh, Residue. Jonathan Berry, Emily Rose, Anna Gova, Sarah Gorecki, and Liza Danger Gardner. And I just, they are like, I, the reason why I'm reading out their names is they are my NodeBots family. And it was such a pleasure to write a book together with all of them. And we all had our own sort of in inventions, you know, everything from boats to security systems to really weird sort of exploratory devices. It's just really awesome to be able to write a book with all those folks. Yeah, that is a, that's a great list of authors. I think that's one of the most impressive lineups of, of uh, even just JavaScripters. I mean, I've never seen a book with that, that kind of lineup of JavaScripters in it. And this is specifically robots. I, I like the, I, I like the symmetry here that this, this book is called Make. And I think it's, it's by O'Reilly and, and you were referring to getting into it by reading something by, from the, was it the Make magazine? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When that when when the physical copy arrived in the mail, yeah, I definitely had feelings because I was like, oh wow, I was so inspired by that make blog, and I was glued to that for years. And so yeah, that was very special and very humbling for me. Yeah, fantastic. Look, I, I recommend people grab that book because that's a that is just an awesome lineup of authors. I know a few of these people well, and they're just fantastic people. So we're going to put a link to that in the show notes for you to pick that up. So let's let's move on. Um, we're going to hear from our our next sponsor today. Our next sponsor is is Sneak S N Y K. Been pronouncing them Sneak for a while. So, but apparently it's Sneak. Yeah. So we're going to hear about Sneak now. Sneak is a London and Israeli company building developer focused security tools, primarily focused on securing open source code. One in seven npm packages carries a known vulnerability, and roughly eighty three percent of Node.js shops are using vulnerable packages. Sneak checks your dependencies against their open source vulnerability database and then helps you find, fix, prevent, and respond to any vulnerabilities in your application. If you're using GitHub, the fix can be as simple as an automated pull request that Sneak submits with the necessary fixes. You can easily integrate Sneak into a CI system like Travis or Jenkins to make sure your application is monitored continuously. Open source projects are free to monitor, and there's also a free 14-day trial for your private code. Find out more at snyk.io slash node. And we're back with Suze Hinton. We're going to find out what she's up to right now, because I know she's got a couple of interesting projects in the works. First of all, I want to talk about your Arduino work, because I know you spend a lot of time on this, and I don't really know much about it, because I, I've got some Arduino gear, but I've never really delved into that. The lowest I've really gone for any extended period of time is, is Raspberry Pi, so you're going to have to school me a bit here. So tell me about your project, AVR Girl. Sure. And Raspberry Pi is really cool, actually. And you've probably done similar things with it than you can do with an Arduino. But AVR Girl is, it's a Node.js library that's designed to interact with a certain manufacturer of microchips. And so it is the Atmel AVR chips. And essentially, they're very low power, you know, low sort of processing speed chips that are quite cheap. And a lot of them feature on most of the Arduinos that you can get these days. And Atmel also produces like ARM chips that you'll find on like your Raspberry Pi and things like that, which is really cool. And so I noticed that there's a, there's some good open source tools out there to, when you write code for an Arduino, you have to write it on a computer and then you upload it onto the device because the device is not powerful enough for you to write code on it with a text editor because it doesn't really run an operating system. And I noticed that there wasn't really any unified JavaScript tool. There were a few tools out there that you could interact with an Arduino with it, but only if you sort of had this nuanced knowledge of it already. And I wanted to make it really easy for people to upload their compiled code onto the actual Arduino without having to use like a non-JavaScript tool or the Arduino IDE, which can be a bit finicky to use. And that's sort of how it started. I think that there's this one step in the, the NodeBots sort of scene where there's a 
pre-compiled script that you need to upload to the device and that exposes all of the different pins and functionality of the Arduino so that you can control it from your computer. And this was such a sticking point for our workshops that a lot of us around the world run where we would have to get everybody to download the Arduino IDE, then they had to open a specific thing and compile it and upload it. And they got so confused about it and it's over a hundred meg to download that it just was a really kind of weird and scary first impression of NoBots for people. And so I ended and, up- And isn't it really finicky too? Like it, it's, it, it's like hit and miss to get it right? Yes. I think I've a- had that experience with it too. Sometimes you, like you, you don't have it plugged into the right port or it's like, it's weird kind of- Exactly. Like- yeah. Just make this thing work and it's not working. <laughs> You're so spot on about that. So one of the first things that I, I wrote as part of AVR Girl was I was like, okay, if someone plugs their device in, the first thing it should do for them is to automatically find it. And so you can just say basically like the you can supply the string of the name of the Arduino board you're using, such as an Arduino Uno or an Arduino Mega. And as long as it knows that name, it can find the exact device plugged into the port, no matter which port you've plugged it in on. And so I wanted to just to create these really nice abstractions, which meant that people didn't have to care about what is a port? What is, how do I find out the port name of this? How do I, you know, I don't understand what's going on. And so I was just trying to create really delightful abstractions that just made that first install step super easy for people because the fun bit is the actual robot bit, right? Not this installation bit. Yeah. Okay. So is this, is this actually being used in the NodeBots context yet? Yeah. I mean, apart from my, myself personally using it to run workshops with, which has been a success, I have seen it being used on an autonomous sailboat, which was built in Vancouver. And it runs on, I think... I think it runs on a couple of Arduinos and a Raspberry Pi. And I think AVR Girl was installed on the Raspberry Pi. And then that meant that they could remotely reflash like the code onto the Arduino, like over the air, like wirelessly. And when they started pull requesting me, I was like, oh, hello, there's something going on here. Why is this person giving me all these really obscure bug fixes? I was like, clearly this person is using it. And so that was really exciting to see that autonomous sailboat make use of it, which is super exciting. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so this is, is this is this your main open source passion? Do you have other open source projects on the go? I have a bunch of things. Most of them are hardware related, to be honest. I think that I see so many people are scared to give hardware a go, even though it's you're just talking to a smaller, like slower computer. And I mean, that's how I see it. And so most of the things I write are supposed to be like pleasant abstractions to just get you moving. And so I have another library called AVR Pizza. <laughs> and that stands for, oh, I forget what that stands for. I think it's like bespoke artisanal like updates over the air or something like that and essentially if if you don't have build tools on your computer you can still compile arduino code and so avr pizza and avr go go hand in hand and you can compile and flash your arduino device all with javascript without having any kind of specialized tools Bespoke artisanal precompiler in ZZEEN. <laughs> you looked it up. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. I'm, I'm working these in the in the. I show just really notes, wanted so, the, uh, the can... dot pizza domain. That's really what it was about. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> Something I, I really appreciate about appreciate about your work here is that you're somebody that you're obviously you've got a passion for design and art. You identify as you self-identify as a front ender, which means that you are more likely to be that. Uh, you know, expressive design type of person. And yet you're not afraid at all to delve into the the lowest levels of hardware. And and that's something I see a lot in the, the NodeBots space particularly, because we've got these, these JavaScripters who, many of whom work almost exclusively on the front end, doing their hobbying work on this really low level. And in, in terms of full stack coverage it's it's difficult to get bigger than that is that is that something that you see in other hardware environments or do you think that nodebots is has got a unique take on that i think i'll honestly say that nodebots has felt very unique i've definitely used like python hardware tools and i was obviously part of the flash and arduino world for a while as well and that sort of felt more like gluing things together not in the best way i would say that the reason why I love the NoBots community so much is that we're just we're so non-judgmental about 
what your current skills are and people come from all walks of life and the commonality in the middle is that we love robots we love hardware and we also just love growing our family and so that's kind of been such a huge focus where anyone should feel welcome even if they've never even like seen an Arduino in real life or not I think that sometimes some niche areas such as electrical engineering can just be a little bit sort of of a gate sort of a gatekeeping sort of situation where you know you have to know a certain amount before you get respect and we're definitely here to break down that idea and I think that JavaScript specifically culturally may be a bit of an equalizer in that yeah one of the things I always say that I like about JavaScript is that the purists hate it um, <laughs> because because it's so quirky. It's got all these things in it that, that that the purists really don't like because it's not it's not this beautiful programming language, and that means that you can be really expressive with it. It's actually a, a, a programming language where you can express your personal style in, and you don't have to stick to the rules. You know, and even programming formatting style you can be very expressive with, and you see that a lot with the JavaScript ecosystem. And the community is is extremely creative and expressive, and it it comes out all up and down the stack. And NodeBot NodeBots to me is is one of the the standouts here because it's it's getting into an area where when I went to university, I, my, I did my first year doing electronics engineering, and I gave that up pretty quickly. But that whole world, you know, the really scientific maths obsessed world is, is, is very exclusive, as you said, but NodeBots is, is the furthest away from that that you can imagine. It's, it's creative, it's expressive. Some of the things that are coming out of it, like what Sarah Chips is doing with JewelBots things, that kind of stuff that comes out of that environment is, is just really amazing to see. I could not agree more. And I think that I'm definitely not a purist when it comes to programming languages. So I really identified with what you just said, because I have always loved things for their imperfections, always. Like, you know when you're, like, in a store as a kid and you're picking out a teddy bear from, like, a million teddy bears that all look the same? I would always go for the dodgy one every time. I always wanted to go for the one whose eye was a bit wonky or something like that. I just, that's always been me. And I feel that JavaScript developers are extremely resourceful because the language is just so lovable in that way. And some people hate it, even though they write it every day. But I think that's what I love so much about it. <laughs> that's great. I've never heard it um, connected to Teddy Bear Story before. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And now the other thing I want to delve into you with that I find absolutely fascinating is, is your live streaming. You're one of the first people that I've seen to do this regularly, which is live streaming your work on open source. Tell me how you got into that and how that's going. I remember when I think it was the first the first I've heard of people coding online was two examples. I think it, one of them is Handmade Hero and that person decided to write a game from scratch without an engine, I think in C or C++. And they still stream all the time on Twitch. And I found that super inspiring and interesting because they talk through every detail. And then the second time I saw some live coding streaming was a game called, have you heard of this? It's called Nuclear Throne. Nope. It's so awesome. You should totally download it on Steam. It's, it's got the best soundtrack I've ever heard. <laughs> you could play the game before it was finished. And then if you sponsored them for a certain amount, or I think if you bought the game and bought additional extras, you got access to their feed and you got to watch them programming. And I remember one episode... They weren't even indenting their code anywhere. And I don't know whether that was like an, a, te a temporary style thing that they were doing, but there, none of their code was indented. And it just blew my mind because I was like, everyone does stuff their own way and everyone's got their own personality. And this is kind of awesome to be this fly on the wall of it. So I decided to do it recently because after Nolan Lawson streamed himself doing open source one day, I just thought, okay, it's probably a good thing if people can see that programming for hardware, it's still just JavaScript underneath. And I sort of wanted to demystify that a bit with my streaming. Yeah. The, one of the things that I find most interesting about it is the, is the way that you're making open source less intimidating. We've got a couple of 
people at Notesource now, so Tierney and Jeremiah, have been um, organizing these live streams of Node Core open source. Partly it's inspired by your work. The thing I really like about it is that breaking down of the barriers of saying, this stuff might, you know, when you come from the outside, and I know this from my personal experience, open source is intimidating to get into. It's really putting yourself out there. But when you are able to watch someone do it live and you see that it's a hobby and that they are in the process of learning as well, I think it really breaks down those barriers and encourages people just to just throw themselves into it. Is that, is that something you're seeing? Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that because that's definitely what I'm trying to achieve. I think that I actually... Like the my username, NoAppCat, used to be like a pseudo-anonymous account on GitHub because I was so scared to put my code in public that I felt that I couldn't tie my identity to it at all. And then I think about a year later, I realized that I was being probably a little too scared. Um, <laughs> and so I ended up just swapping all my usernames over to it just to kind of really hammer that home. And I just, I I think about all the all of the things that I felt that were negative about myself. And I think, how can I stop someone else from possibly feeling that way too? I see suffering and I want to help people. And I think that our industry is just really, really tough to survive in. And even if you're surviving, you're still probably beating yourself up about something. And so I saw Twitch as a positive thing for myself to gain more confidence about coding out in the open, but also for other people to see that no open source publisher is perfect and we're all still learning and we all still make mistakes. And you're building a um, a regular stable of followers, aren't you? And you interact with them live. Because I, I, I've never used Twitch before. I, I just made myself an account recently. And I really want to get into similar things that you're doing here. But you're developing a bit of a, a relationship with your regular viewers, aren't you? Yeah, that's really cool about Twitch. So I, I don't really, I'm not a huge video game player anymore. Like I, I'm very, very casual and I don't get a lot out of watching people gaming on Twitch at all. Like I've tried to get into it, but so, so when I got into twitching, um, I guess twitching is what, what the term is streaming on Twitch. I didn't actually know the Twitch platform very well as a result. So I had no idea what I was doing and I had to learn as I went along. And when I started seeing regulars coming back, it was just a really cool feeling that kind of like the no boss community you're building a family and I saw people come in and acknowledge each other and and say hey it's really good to see you again and just seeing people's reactions when you also say welcome back or how is your day or like it's really great to see you again is awesome I mean everyone facilitates a really great relationship in the chat and people are constantly pair programming with me and suggesting like better ways of doing stuff and and hypothesizing about a bug that we're trying to solve and so I now kind of refer to my twitch stream as we rather than I which was probably one of the most surprising experiences I've had yeah, that's that's fantastic. I love that story that open source is not is no longer a solo effort, but you're actually not only participating with people across the time boundaries, but you're doing it live now. You're actually uh, pair programming open source. Um, fantastic. Yeah. No, I love I love this. So I I I'd encourage people to follow Susan, <clears throat> watch out for her live streams, and and go and participate in that. You can also watch out for Jeremiah Saint Peel. He does this with open source. Node core open source work, but watching that process of responding to bugs and pull requests, I think is really educational. If you haven't, if you don't have a much of an open source presence yourself, really encourage you to, to watch it live and participate too. It's a great step. So thanks. Thanks a lot for, for, I, I, I mean, I guess you're not claiming that you're a pioneer here, but I think you are one of the pioneers in this, this field. So thanks a lot for, for, for doing that. Suze, I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that it's had an impact on people. Thanks so much. So is, is there anything else that you want to tell us about what you're into at the moment? Is there anything else that you're passionate about or does this sum up your um, nerd passions for the moment? <laughs> I think that sums it up. I think I'm going through a bit of a retro, like a retro computing phase again, like this usually comes around. And so I can't say too much, but I'm trying to re-implement an old data encoding format, but stay tuned for that for later this year. But I just wanted to plant that seed to get people interested. But yeah, I'll be blogging about that pretty soon. Wow, that sounds 
<laughs> pretty interesting. <laughs> Look forward to, to to reading about that. Okay, so let's uh, let's break for our next sponsor. Our next sponsor is Rollbar, and we're going to hear about them now. One of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors, relying on users to report them, digging through log files trying to debug issues, or a million alerts flooding your inbox ruining your day. With Rollbar's full-stack error monitoring, you get the context, insights, and control you need to find and fix bugs faster, with a lot less noise. It's easy to install. You can start tracking production errors and deployment in a few minutes. Rollbar works with all major languages and frameworks, Ruby, Python, JavaScript, PHP, and of course, Node. You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow, send alerts to Slack or HipChat, Create new issues in Jira or Trello and link your GitHub, Bitbucket, or GitLab repos. We have a special offer for NodeUp listeners. Go to rollbar.com slash NodeUp. Sign up and get the bootstrap plan free for 90 days. Loved by developers at awesome companies like Heroku, Twilio, Kayak, Zendesk, Twitch, and more. Give Rollbar a try today. Go to rollbar.com slash NodeUp. Welcome back. We're talking to Suze Hinton and we're going to lead out here with some sage words from Suze to people that are new in their career or looking to level up. So Suze, I, I don't know if you've got much to share here, but I usually ask people to, if they can recommend their favorite speakers or conferences or resources to learn from, is there blogs? Um, is there anything that you love to consume or have consumed before that you can heartily recommend to our listeners? Yes, I have so many, so be patient. One of my favorite speakers in the whole world is actually my best friend, and her name is Mariko Kosaka. I'm sure you've heard of her, Rod, because she's yeah, yeah she's on the speaker circuit. Mariko has this this wit and charm about about demystifying things that everyone's too scared to ask about. So you know, people. People are like, oh, yeah, service workers, I know what that is. Um, but, you know, America is like, well, I didn't know what that was. And, and here, here's a bunch of really helpful diagrams and analogies so that you can understand what a service worker is. And so Mariko's talks and her blog are just incredible. And I would recommend definitely checking them out because it's just a really empathetic, compassionate, but also super fun and interesting way of, of breaking down concepts that you need to know, especially when you're a web developer. And she did a thing on programming knitting machines as well, didn't she? Yeah, exactly. She she figured out how it worked and then she did it in JavaScript and she sort of taught herself how compilers work by trying to come up with her own knitting languages and stuff like that, which is awesome. Okay, well, she's, so she's, uh, she, yeah, she's been on the speaking circuit, so check some of her talks out. They've been great. I have another one for you. This is somebody who I've learned a lot from and I've taken a lot of inspiration from when I do my Twitch stream. Um, his name is MPG, uh, Matthias, and he, he has a YouTube channel called Fun Fun Function. And I just love his channel. He's mostly focused on JavaScript and he mostly creates videos that are requested. So he makes sure that he explains concepts that people want to actually know about. And he kind of has three different video styles that he does. Like one of them is pair programming with someone who, which is just always delightful. He has one where he does musings. So he'll talk about just general industry musings about becoming a better programmer or, you know, does it matter what code editor you use and things like that. And then his, his other ones, which are a lot shorter, just things like what is functional programming in JavaScript? What does reduce do? How does the prototype work? And I, I'll, I'll tell you what, it, I've watched a lot of his videos thinking, oh, I know this stuff, but I'll always pick out this little nugget that he gives you. And I'm like, oh, I never knew that little specific detail. That's awesome. Um, and he's just an incredibly entertaining, but also like really compassionate person. And yeah, definitely check him out. Okay. I'm, I'm making sure these go into the show notes because there's some great names here. Uh, I wasn't aware of Matthias. So it's a good one. Any other speakers that you're particularly keen on? Yeah, I love... I love Justin Searles. He has a variety mm. of different topics. I, I'm a huge fan of Justin. Yeah, he's great. I just watched a recent one called How to Scratch an Itch, and uh, that's my favorite video he's ever done. And it, it doesn't talk about code specifically, but it's an incredibly inspirational kind of self-deprecating journey of how he became a better programmer, and I just love it. Yeah, and so I definitely recommend you start with that one and then work backwards. 
Um, that was, was how, how to scratch an itch. Yes. And I have, nice. I have another one. I really love this book that, well, every, like a lot of people know who Remy Sharp is. I won't say everybody because it's not, it's not a bad thing if you don't know who he is, but Remy Sharp is awesome. He created JS bin as well as like a bunch of other th- really, really cool tools. And yeah, he's quite famous on the speaker circuit, but he wrote a book recently, well, over the last few years, but he, he finished it and it's called Working the Command Line. And I read it because I had a feeling that even if I didn't learn anything from it, just because I've been using the command line for a few years now, that it would be an absolute delight to read because it was Remy. And I was not let down. In fact, I was like delighted beyond expectation. It is just the most human beautifully explained, just really lovely read. And I did actually learn a thing or two in there that I didn't know about the command line. And so definitely pick that up. It's a really fast read. I think I read it in like an hour or less on a Saturday morning and it just totally made my day. Fantastic. Remy's a, yeah, he's a great guy. So friendly. What about um, conferences? Have you found any particular conferences particularly enjoyable? Yeah, I've been going to quite a few. <laughs> I'm trying to cut down. Um, <laughs> one of my one of my favorite ones from last year was Code Mania, and you might have heard of this rod because it's in your neighborhood. It's in New Zealand, in uh, Auckland. It's run by really cool people, and the the culture of the conference and just the attendees was so so lovely, and also just I was taken care of really really well as a speaker as well there I just thought that that was a really good programming conference to go to because it was mostly about web stuff but it wasn't it was a very generalist conference and I really like that because I tend to just learn things that I'm not expecting at those kind of conferences I love web rebels web rebels is held in Oslo in uh Norway. I realize none of these are in the U.S., but I'm I'm sort of a bit more internationally minded anyway, given that I'm not from the U.S. That one is awesome. I, I haven't been to Web Rebels, but I'm always hearing good things about it. I think they've even got it. They've got a CFP open now, so they if do. you are interested in getting into the speaking circuit, then yeah, think about that one. Yes. Yeah. I've just I've been to I've been to a lot of conferences, but those two have definitely been my favorite. They've been the standout in both just quality of talks, but also just like how lovely everyone is to interact with as well, for sure. Well, while we're on this, I'm going to plug Empire Node and Empire JS, which is in your neck of the woods in New York. But I, I did Empire Node, I think it was in 2015, I think it was. And that was a great experience. And they've always got a great lineup there. So if you're in that area of the States or you're going to be there around that the time that they're running those conferences, then uh, you should check that out. That's a, a great, great event run by some great people too. Totally. I went to that one. That was in November this year. And I actually was at the one that you were at too. So I've been two years in a row. And I think that the variety of talks was probably the best part of that. And just people are doing really cool things with Node. And I'm really impressed with how they've smoked all of those interesting people out to talk at that conference for sure. Yeah, it's very often that conferences will be will lean towards one side of of. In JavaScript land, because it's so broad, they might lean more to the front end or the back end. But some of these conferences really get a great balance across the spectrum. Definitely. Now, another question I like to ask guests is where do you see our industry going? And what are going to be some of the most interesting technologies or movements that are coming up in the next few years? So into the future, what do you see coming up that may not be hot right now, but you think has the potential? I think that the things that I'm thinking about are probably things that are hot at the moment, like things like AI and neural networks and and things like that. I think that it would be useful just to pick up at least foundational skills in that because I think we're going to see more and more uses for it, but also we're going to see that technology improve with time, with lessons. I mean, part of strengthening neural networks is giving them enough time to actually use feedback that we're putting back into the system. And so I think that that's going to be pretty unavoidable, if anything. And I think that the more you know about it now, I think the best posed you will be to be able to make good ethical decisions around it as well. 
I think that we're going to have some pretty tough moral decisions as developers to make in the future when we're asked to do certain things and learning about things like cognitive bias that you can put into artificial intelligence and things like that. I think that that's going to be fundamental to the success of it. But I think that regardless, it's going to stay in our industry and it's just going to become a larger part of our industry, definitely. Do you, do you have any thoughts on entry points into that field? Because it's so broad and it's constantly shifting and, and even rebranding, like the, the latest thing of deep learning, like that's really just a rebranding of a bunch of different technologies under a new heading. Any thoughts on how you might crack into that? Yeah, there are a few good resources online and I can't I can't remember them off the top of my head, so we can put them in the show notes, but there is a there are a lot of really good talks that demystify it. There was a talk at IO Festival this year. That's not the Google IO, it's the EYEO in Minneapolis. A speaker got up and demystified it a little bit and actually explained it, whereas a lot of people just kind of get up and, and show off what they've made. And I found that fascinating. I mean, every time I log on to Amazon or any bookstores, I'm seeing a lot of resources coming out. And so I think that it's similar to like everything else that you learn. I think that people shouldn't be afraid of it just because it seems very obscure. I think it's just like hardware. It's once you get past the basics, you're like, oh, okay, this is just another thing that I can spend a lot of time on and get really good at if I want to. And it's, it's broad as well, isn't it? So that you can actually find different entry points like with hardware. You don't yeah. have to go in this particular gate. It's so true. You can like, you can do image recognition one day and then you can be doing like recommendation engines or like speech analysis the next day. So I think that there's a passion in there for everybody. Okay. I think there's, there's some really good resources there that people can dig into. Some great thoughts. I want to close, sorry, round up this section with talking about Aussie language. Um, <laughs> and the reason I want to do this, because we have a mutual friend who's constantly amused by the um, uh, the Aussie lingo that he, that he picks up from you all the time. I mean, I don't live over there. I live in Australia. But as somebody who travels there regularly, I, I constantly feel this this sense of being a foreigner by the language that I use. And I, so I, I, for me, g'day is something I use regularly. And I also say crikey a lot regularly. And I don't notice these things until I go over there and start saying them. And I realize that these things are actually a novelty. Crikey is something that they hear that Americans, you know, used to hear Steve Irwin say. And so whenever these things come out of my mouth, it just, I feel like a foreigner. And as somebody who lives there, you must feel that all the time. It's so true. And and the reason why you can hear an American accent in my voice is like, I've been in the US for about six, I think six years now. And I was such a novelty whenever I opened my mouth. And so the first thing that disappeared was the Aussie slang, because no one could understand me. The next thing that disappeared was my Aussie mumble, because we're all just mumblers. <laughs> and people were like, what did you just say? And then the last thing that sort of started going, which is still currently going, was my accent, because like I couldn't even do my groceries without having to tell my life story. Or, or you know, like I would ask a simple request at work. And even if it wasn't slang. I want to tell you the story that happened recently. I was in a meeting room and someone was explaining something technical and we were talking about like passing a JSON file. And I was like, oh, but can't you just pass the JSON? They're like, what? And I was like, you can just pass the JSON. And they're like, well, where am I passing it to? I'm like, no, 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 parse parse the JSON and they were like, oh, and just the room erupted in laughter because I, I felt like I was like speaking a whole different language. I, I, so I've got two, I've got two of those. I intentionally adjust when I go over there. One of them is cache. Oh my um, God. Yes. I thought, I thought, so, okay. Cache is, is how we Australians and some other countries say the word cache. This is one of the ones where I admit that we are at fault because that's a, I believe that's a French word is actually cash and we say cache because that's how we would read it. So if you're in Australia and you say the word cache, people know what that is. I go to the US and I say the word cache and they have no idea what I'm talking about. I regularly hear other Aussies getting tripped up on this. Um, is that something you've adjusted? Yeah, definitely. I found that the first time it was hilarious and then I would sort of stick to my guns and be like, no, I'm going to use cash. And the people would just erupt in giggles and they wouldn't take my technical suggestion seriously. So I just started saying cash. So I say cash all the time now. Unfortunately, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, I, I do. I do. And I'm, I'm, I'm a trader as well when well, I go over there. Actually, I have a question easy. for you. 
Do you do you say Babel or Babel? Oh, okay. I had an argument with Sebastian McKenzie about this on Twitter <laughs> because because he reckons that that Babel is was the he wanted to assert that Babel was the Australian way of saying it. And to me, I've I've only ever heard Australians say Babel. So Sebastian McKenzie, who's the Babel author, he's Australian as well. So he's asserting that Australians say Babel. I'm asserting that Australians usually say Babel. So I would go with Babel, but I've learnt to say Babel when I'm talking to people about it because that's just what it is. What about you? <laughs> I'm secretly Team Babel too, but I just say Babel because it's not worth it. You know? <laughs> it's not worth it. Yeah. Because like, the other one, the, yeah. Yeah, because Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, they call it a Babel fish, and and Babel I fish, thought yeah, that that's what he yeah. was naming it after. You know, the Babel fish translates language, and I was like, well, that's it's, a transpiler. It's the it's the Tower of Babel from from the biblical story. Ah. Um, but because of all the languages being scattered. And that's where the Babel fish came from as well. So, Babel, that was... Ah. But, <laughs> but I grew see, I grew up in Darwin, which is a very different kind of Australia. So, I am, you know, I'm never confident asserting my version of Australiana um, because it's, my version is kind of out there. The other one that I adjust is the word router. Oh, goodness um, me. See, R-O-U-T-E-R, which Americans will say router. And, the, and when I say router, then they've got no idea. That's another one that I completely change up when I'm talking to Americans. I, I, I assume you've done the same. Yeah, definitely. Even with like directions or something, I'm like, what's the route there? They're like, the what? Because <laughs> <laughs> to us, you know, the route, route is a word. You can route the enemy and, and the way to get somewhere is a route. I, f- but- I feel like we're kind of cheating though, right? Because, you know, we we grew up with watching episodes of Friends and um, watching American yeah. movies. And, you know, most people haven't watched The Castle and they haven't watched... Well, they've watched Crocodile Dundee, right? And so you get the classic, that's not a knife. And that's pretty much hey, all that they yeah. know to say. Crocodile Dundee and Steve Irwin, they're the two references. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I'm like, well, it's not shrimp, it's prawns. And, you know, I just end up endlessly <laughs> correcting instead. <laughs> Yeah, that's the heresy of that shrimp on the Barbie thing, is that if he was in Australia, he would have said prawns. Um, yeah. Through the show, I think we've already come up with a few words that have just slipped out. I think you might have used the word dodgy Yeah. Um, already. Can you explain dodgy to our audience? I guess dodgy is sort of like faulty, right? That's how I describe it. Like faulty or like if you're doing something dodgy, it means that you're like up to no good. So I guess like... Yeah, it's kind of like something not quite right. Yeah, dodgy is a favourite of mine. I love I dodgy. All the time. And wonky is similar, isn't it? It's a, in the same sort of vein. Yeah, to me... I think Amer- Americans would say would, the word wonk would mean like somebody who's a nerd in a particular topic. Yeah. Whereas wonky for us is very different. Wonky seems like an onomatopoeia to me or there's some kind of synesthesia going on with me because the word wonky just kind of... Like, my head almost immediately starts wobbling because, like, if something's You're wonky, right. it's, like, off-kilter or off-center. Yep, yep. One of the amusing ones that I've heard through our mutual friend is is rock up. Um, <laughs> and and I, I have this joke with my wife because I told my wife this story about him being educated <laughs> rock up. She thinks it's hilarious as well. Do you want to explain how Australians use the term rock up? Yeah, so I think I was – I think – it started because I was telling him a story about something and I said to him, well, you can't just rock up to the store and, you know, do blah, blah, blah. And he's like, what? You don't what to the store? And I said, rock up. And he's like, what is rock up? And I was like, you know, you, you, you turn up somewhere, you, you rock on up. And he was just like, it just totally derailed the conversation, which was totally fine. And he's just like, this is like magnificent. He just loves it. So anytime I'll say to him, you know, let's go to the cinema or, you know, we should go pick this up from the post office. He's like, all right, let's rock up to the post office. (laughs) 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 And he's like really proud because he's like, yeah, I'm like, I'm like saying the lingo. And I think it's really cute. Oh yeah. No, he totally, totally thinks he's an Aussie now, Um, (laughs) but that's great. The other thing I wanted to dive into was um, word shortening because it's something that we're like, we are so lazy with our language and our words get shortened. And they actually often get shortened into things that are not actually shorter than the word we're saying. We don't have any rules for shortening, do we? We just, we just shorten stuff how it feels, don't we? Yeah. 
And I think it starts with somebody. And as long as it's got a good mouthfeel, everyone else follows suit, right? So yeah. instead of going to the bottle shop or the, like, the alcohol store, you go to the bottle Instead of going to the service station, you go to the servo. And in, you're not an electrician, you're a sparky. You're not a tradesperson, you're a tradie. Um, I don't yeah, know. And, and names names get shortened all the time and changed. I get, I get called Rotto occasionally. <laughs> It's not even shorter than Rod. It's not shorter, no. It's not. <laughs> I think the one that I love is Damo. Damo. I just love Damo so much for Damien. And like some yeah. some like it and some don't like it. So I know some Damien's that are like, how dare you? And other Damo's just lap it up. Is lap it up a, an Aussie thing La- as well? It could be. It could be, yeah. I don't know. Because that's the thing. I, even though I've been working with Americans for a long time, I'm still clueless about whether some of these things are colloquial or not. Because like we have a company sh- slack for node source, and I'm I'm regularly saying things uh, where they, the, the Americans will pull me up and say, what? And like sometimes they'll think that I'm saying the opposite of what I'm saying, and I don't realize that it's an Australianism. I really, I, I'm constantly learning this stuff myself. Yeah, totally. I remember the first time I said Fortnite to someone, I was horrified, horrified that there was no word Fortnite. It's like, what do you call two weeks? <laughs> and I was like, it, it means 14 <laughs> nights. And I was just like, but how how have you gotten this far with without confusion? <laughs> oh, no, no, because the way they solve it is, is by using the term bi-weekly, which can mean twice a week or every two weeks, which is... Really helpful. Isn't it, it makes me really, <laughs> really panicky. I'm part of the Ember Accessibility Community Project Team, and we have bi-weekly meetings. And I, I actually said, <sighs> I just want to make sure that it's fortnightly. Is that what you mean? And then they loved that so much that they renamed it. Instead of bi-weekly, it's now called fortnightly meetup. So <laughs> I was proud of that. <laughs> yeah. No, I just outlaw buy anything because it can mean twice or every two just ridiculous. Yeah. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> Look, there's there's so much more. We can have a whole show on this stuff, and I think it would probably be entertaining for a lot of people, but I'm sure it would be quite boring for others. I, th- I think we've done our job here of Australianizing Note Up once again. So I want to thank you for for that, Suze. And we're going to finish up with some plugs. So this is a time where we can plug things that we're currently interested in that we want to share with the with the audience. And I'm going to go first to set the tone here. I've been plugging books recently that I've been enjoying, and I'm going to do it again because I. I've been reading the Expanse series, which I have to recommend again. It is so good. And they're still writing more of them. And I think they could go on for a long time. So, the Expanse, go do that. But I took a break from that and I read a trilogy called the Red Rising trilogy. It's another sci-fi. And it's- I was sort of put off by the description for a long time, but I finally got into it. And it is one of the best reads. I lapped up- (laughs) that series really quickly. It's set in the it's set in this future and it's not even a classic sci-fi future. It's this future where society itself has been remade into these this these classes of people and you've got um you know genetic engineering going on to really separate the classes as well. And it's about these these different classes and that how the, the lowest class, the reds, end up rising and you know I'm throwing out this really strict class system, but it's got some fantastic characters in it. It's got, it's a great story. The, the first book will get you hooked because it's got a, I've heard it described as a cross between Game of Thrones and the Hunger Games. I haven't seen the Hunger Games, but I, but knowing what it's about, I can say that sounds like a very good description. So the Red Rising series by Pierce Brown. I thoroughly recommend that one for any sci-fi fans out there. Suze, do you have a plug for us? Yeah. By the way, that sounds awesome. That I was actually going to ask you if you were secretly recommending The Hunger Games. So, like, that's kind of cool to hear that that's similar to that. I might give that a read. Um, yeah, you should. <laughs> um, so, for my plugs, I have... I have a documentary and then I have a couple of books because I was inspired by you doing books recently. So just like coming full circle back to my intro and like there was a there's a documentary that just got released online for you to watch and just to connect everything really neatly it was also kickstarted so that's really exciting and it's called 8-Bit Generation The Commodore Wars and so it's about it's about the Commodore company who made the Victorian and the Commodore 64 that we talked about but it kind of goes all the way back to like competitive calculate calculator selling you know like all of the different computer companies like Tandy and everyone coming out with calculators and how that moved to computers and 
basically centered on Commodore's journey in there and its ruthless competitive strategies and its kind of rise and decline. And like, I just loved it because I'm super into the Commodore 64 and the VIC-20 because I'm nostalgic. But it was fascinating to kind of have all of the different people on the show, including the people that designed the actual the actual 6502 chip that you know features on that and the Nintendo NES and all of that. I just loved that documentary and just the ruthless business story was was definitely a surprise for me. That sounds really good. I can totally have to get Yeah, into that. I think it's like 5 bucks to buy. It's it's pretty cheap. Cool. I'm going to totally get that. That sounds because I, I this, let me continue my plugging. The series Halt and Catch Fire, even though it's it's fictional, it's based around these real things that happened in the early generations of the 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 IBM compatible wars. That sounds like a similar sort of vein there, and I love that series Halt and Catch Fire. If you haven't watched that, I recommend. I would totally that. check it out. Awesome. Okay, some great plugs. I'd love to be able to plug an Aussie dictionary as well. I wish we had a good resource here, but maybe we'll find <laughs> one one day and do a future plug. It's even entertaining for us Aussies to make fun of our own language. It's been a great show. Thanks very much for being on with me, Suze. And I, I recommend people catch up with you on your various channels, Twitter, GitHub, Twitch, and look forward to the work you're coming out with in the future. Thanks, Rod. I really appreciate this. This was super cool to talk to you. Lots of fun. You can follow NodeUp on Twitter. You can uh, sponsor the show as well. Um, if you want to do that, then email NodeUp at gmail.com for a, a sponsorship prospectus. Um, lots of opportunities there. Thanks very much for listening, and I look forward to doing this again soon. Bye. Bye.